Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. To begin this episode today, we'll be doing something different. So please don't skip ahead as this is important for you to listen to. Today's episode is different because it contains some extra voices other than my own, both telling important stories, one present and one from the past but both are incredibly relevant to the time we're living in currently. The two extra stories I urge you to listen to, as they are important to hear as they relate directly to the Black Lives Matter movement. As you may have grown to realise if you're a regular listener of the show, I have a set of rules that form how I decide on Macabre London episodes, and these two stories deviate from my usual format. For one, they're not London-based stories, and they also contain more recent crimes than I would usually cover. I want to warn you that today's episode does contain language and descriptions of violence which may be upsetting, so do please be aware of that, as I know some people use my episodes in classrooms and also let their children listen. I have included in the description below links to child-friendly resources to teach these particular stories. However, I would state that sometimes you need to be made to feel uncomfortable to learn and grow. As always, watching this episode on YouTube will give you more information about our stories today so if you can please head on over to the Macabre London YouTube channel to watch there. All advertising payments from this episode will go to charities who are working to support the Black Lives Matter movement, so please play this episode as many times as you can to make that donation higher. I will also match that donation personally too. With the recent murder of George Floyd and the current situation in the world, it seems vital that we move away from our usual episode format this time in order to use this platform to share stories of those who are marginalised. Please take a look in the description below for a list of resources on these stories, how you can help, where you can donate, and where to find further information. This time, on Macabre London, we'll be covering the murder of Stephen Lawrence, the lynching and murder of Emmett Till, and the death of Shukri Abdi. 
For our first story today, we'll be hearing about Shukri Abdi. It was a listener who contacted me about this story, and they were so passionate about it that I asked them to record a video themselves so they could tell you the story. And here it is. Hi everybody, thank you for watching. Um, today I would like to tell you the story of a little girl, um, which is another story of bullying leading to a disaster. So this little girl was bullied and later died under mysterious circumstances. She went to a school that was already infamous for bullying and there were even documented cases about a senior teacher who was systematically bullied. Those incidents were also reported and yet nothing was done about this. At some point it was too much for the lady and she ended up committing suicide. Because of this and a low Ofsted ranking, Ofsted is a school review system, which I for example didn't know, the school closed end of March 2019, changed their names and reopened without any other changes. But back to the little girl. She went to this new school and everybody knows being the new kid is kind of difficult and bullies will have it easy to pick on you. So on, Dece uh, on December 2018, shortly before Christmas, this young lady was pushed into traffic by a female classmate. Please remember this incident, it's going to be important later. Guess what happened after she told her mother? That's right, the mother was worried about the little girl and she reported the incident to the school. Even more worryingly, the school refused to do anything about it, simply stating Christmas was around the corner and there will be nobody available to look into the matter. At this stage, how would you feel? Imagine your sister, your daughter, your niece, or even your best friend is telling you all of this, that she's being bullied, a fellow classmate tried to push her into traffic, and the school is refusing to help. But now to the steps leading up to the incident. On the afternoon on 20th, 27th June of 2019, the girl was picked up from school by two female classmates. Let's refer to them as child one and child two. They found her in the changing room and pushed her around a little, then told her to hurry up. They wanted to take her out with them. She went with the two girls to the home of child one. They had food there and they were described being typical teenagers. After that, they changed into t-shirts and leggings and left the house to a nearby river. They bumped into two male classmates. The little girl was hesitant about spending time with the two boys. But in the end, the group of five made their way to the river together. By this time her mother started to look for her since she failed to show up on time, which was very unusual for her. When asked why her daughter would spend time in the water, the mother gave a shocking response. Her daughter cannot even swim and she knew better than to go into the water. So why was she at the river then? Did she go willingly? If so, what else has happened? A fisherman stated he saw this girl with other pupils being dragged to the river where she died. But this was dismissed by the police because the fisherman was allegedly drunk. Another interesting fact is that child one confessed to her foster carer that she threatened to kill the little girl if she did not get into the water. This was meant to be a joke. And now the twist from earlier. Remember that the little girl was pushed into traffic on December 2018? Yeah, child one was the one that pushed her. That brings up the question again of how willingly she went or whether she was forced. Initial findings of the police say there were no suspicious circumstances surrounding her death. When they found her, she was fully dressed, which sounds very odd. Furthermore, there were bite and scratch marks on her body. She had broken bones and bruises on the back of her head. The bruises and broken bones suggest that she fell into the water backwards, 
hitting her head and likely died as a result of that instead of drowning. But one pathologist confirmed the cause of death was drowning. She was found in a rocky, shallow part that was not deep enough to drown, which supports the theory of her falling backwards and hitting her head. The question is, was she pushed or did she fall? Sources vary on the bite marks. Some suggest it could have been animals, some say they were none at all. The police dismissed this as a tragic accident with no further investigation needed. To add insult to injury, they warned against cooling off in rivers, lakes and reservoirs. She was 12 years old when she died on the 27th of June 2019. We left out some important details, deliberately. The little girl's name is Shukri Abdi. She was a black African refugee of Somali origin. She resettled with her family in the UK under a special UN protection program. Did these details change how you feel about the case? Does her ethnicity somehow make her death less valuable to you or less important to you? Ask yourself why. And if nothing's changed and you want to help to get justice for Shukri, here's how. No matter where you are in the world, the internet and social media can be a powerful tool for justice. Show your support by liking, commenting and sharing the story. Use the hashtag Justice for Shukri. Check out the Justice for Shukri Instagram page where you'll find a petition that you can sign and help to get justice and more details on how to be more involved. And I just want to say a few additional things. This actually comes about as a result of me researching injustice and police brutality after seeing the horrific video of four police officers killing a an unarmed black man who was not in any way a threat to them and was willing to comply over a $20 note and the most horrific part of that video for me was hearing a grown man calling for his mother and no mercy being shown whatsoever by any of the officers nearby not anybody getting involved to stop what was happening and so that got me researching because I already knew about Eric Garner, um, Garner and some other people and I was horrified to find all of these instances of not just individual police officers doing things wrong but the justice system all of the institutions that are supposed to be for justice were not delivering justice in many 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 cases and there are too many to name there are too many websites you can go to to find out but what i would really urge some people to do is to go and educate yourself go and do some research instead of judging instead of jumping to your first gut instinct go and do some research read educate yourself it's the best thing you can do to stop yourself from being a part of the problem and to find a way to be a part of the solution. At 10.30 p.m. the 22nd of April 1993, two 18-year-olds sat at a bus stop on Well Hall Road in Eltham in South East London. Stephen Lawrence and Dwayne Brooks, two black men, were waiting to catch the bus after having been at Stephen's uncle's house playing video games after school. When the bus was taking its time to turn up, Stephen jogged along the road to see if he could see it coming. As if it wasn't, they were thinking of instead just walking the rest of the way to their houses, 
Dwayne was left at the stop with three other strangers. Stephen was on his own when a group of five white youths appeared on the opposite side of the road. As they crossed the street, having seen Stephen on the opposite side, they began to shout racial abuse at him. They then ran towards him and surrounded him, jumped on Stephen and pinned him to the floor before stabbing him, causing two deep lacerations on either side of his body, one to his left shoulder and one to his upper chest by his collarbone. These stab wounds severed two major arteries in his body, which caused him to bleed severely. He also received a punctured lung. After the short but brutal attack, Dwayne shouted to his friend to get up and run. He managed a short distance of 120 metres before he collapsed. Dwayne saw Stephen collapse, and knowing he needed urgent help, he ran to a phone box on the opposite side of the street and called for an ambulance. However, the police were dispatched before the ambulance, and arrived on the scene first. By the time the ambulance had arrived, Stephen had bled to death. Stephen was the son of Doreen and Neville Lawrence, who were first-generation immigrants from Jamaica. He was the eldest of three children. A pupil of Blackheath Bluecoat School, Stephen lived in Eltham in southeast London, where he was known to his community by his attendance at the local church. He excelled at sport during his school life and had plans to go to university to study architecture. In 1993, Elton was a predominantly white working-class area. It had a history of racism and intolerance toward people of colour, and Stephen's parents and his white neighbours had warned him to always be home early with a curfew of 10.30pm as a way of trying to combat the roaming crowds of white youths who would be out looking for trouble. In neighbouring Welling, all-round spam-faced flag munchers, the British National Party, a far-right fascist political party, had set up their headquarters in a room above a local bookshop five years previously. This had led to an increased amount of racially motivated attacks on residents of the area, many of which were ignored by police, due to the fact that BNP had masses of support for police services, something that is still in their manifesto to this day. On the night of Stephen's murder, Dwayne was interrogated by police at the scene, while Stephen lay bleeding to death on the floor. They were more intent on asking Dwayne questions than they were with helping Stephen. No first aid was carried out on Stephen until the ambulance arrived. By this time, he had died. The police didn't even check Stephen over. They didn't even realise he had stab wounds. Police also didn't listen to Dwayne's description of the gang, and as to which directions the attackers had fled to. If they had, they could have easily caught them, as they were only a few streets away by this time. More importantly, they didn't believe Dwayne that this was an unprovoked attack, and kept calling it a fight. The fact of the matter is, after such deeply inflicted wounds, Stephen had no chance of surviving, but the police wouldn't have known that, and instead they actively chose not to help him. At the hospital, doctors tried to save Stephen, but he had already been dead for too long of a time and lost too much blood to have any chance of survival. He was pronounced dead not long after arrival. One person who had been at the bus stop when the attack happened was a neighbour of Stephen's. Once he'd got on the bus, he went to Stephen's home and told his parents that he'd seen Steve attacked and that when he'd left, he was on the ground. Doreen and Neville, Stephen's parents, drove by the bus stop and saw that Stephen wasn't there, so instead they dashed to the local hospital. They expected that Stephen would have minor injuries, but they didn't expect to receive the news that their son had died. Back at the scene, very little was being done by the police. More of them arrived, but there was no attempt to collect evidence. 
and Dwayne, who was clearly in shock at having just seen his friend murdered, was being treated as a suspect. He was questioned about weapons, and if he and Stephen instigated the attack, even after telling officers about the racially abusive language the gang had used towards Stephen. Ignoring what Dwayne had said as to which direction the attackers had gone, officers went the wrong way along the road, looking for the gang of youths, and this allowed them to disappear completely without trace. Eventually, more police arrived and failed to do anything useful. Dwayne was taken to Plumstead Police Station and questioned. The next day, numerous people from the local community knew who it was that had murdered Stephen. Inside a phone box, a letter was found which named the attackers. There was also a note left on the windscreen of a police car which had the same names upon it, plus a few anonymous phone calls which also stated the same names. This gang was known, and they were known for one thing, their racism. The group consisted of five recurring names, and they ranged from 16 to 25 years old at the time of the attack. Gary Dobson, David Norris, Luke Knight, and two brothers, Jamie and Neil Accord, who had given themselves the nickname of the Elton Craze, and modelled themselves on the notorious East End twin gangsters of the 50s and 60s. They were also referred to by the locals as Nutters with Knives. The gang had a reason that they had acquired that name. There had been quite a few stabbings in the area, which had been attributed to at least one of its members, and David Norris, who was the son of another known criminal, Clifford Norris, had been charged with the stabbing of a white teenager, Stacey Benfield, a few months earlier, but had been acquitted due to insufficient evidence. Luke Knight and Gary Dobson didn't have any criminal convictions themselves, and were thought to be new to the group. Perhaps performing a racist attack was a way of initiation into the gang. Despite having all of those names handed to them on a plate, the police said they didn't have any leads or evidence to go off, and this was the story that was relayed to Stephen's parents. The police did, however, begin surveillance on the houses of those names they had been tipped off about, which produced some disturbing photographs. The officers who were looking after the case changed partway through, and this led to confusion over evidence turning the whole case into a convoluted mess. This meant that further leads and sourcing witnesses was also disrupted by the incompetent response of the police. This meant that there was now less and less of a chance of securing a conviction of the gang. Police claimed that the lack of evidence was due to the local community being silent and that they were trying to protect the gang, but that was very far from the truth. The local community were fed up with the gang and the people who lived in Elton, who didn't associate themselves with the racist leanings of this group and their friends, wanted them arrested. Even an insider tip-off from a local skinhead was left without investigation. They then tried to get more evidence and held off making any arrests. Surveillance of the Accord's home showed many of the gang going to and from the house. There were also bin bags taken and placed in cars, which may have contained bloodstained clothing, and the photographs taken proved the affiliation of the members with each other, a vital connection which would have easily solved the case. However, the photographs were ignored, and the surveillance photographer found it very difficult to pass on his photographs to anyone who was involved in the case. Instead, what was damning evidence was ignored. It was as if the police were trying to make it look like they were working on the case, but it seemed they had no interest in making an arrest and a conviction. At this time, the Lawrence family knew that the police were failing them. They went to the press and began to denounce the police, and I quote Doreen Lawrence, If this had been a white boy, they would not stop until they get the killer. The police didn't begin looking for forensic evidence until the Lawrence family publicly denounced them, 
and it took a fortnight before the homes of the named gang members were even searched. Many police officers were also publicly saying that the attack wasn't racially motivated and were trying to detract attention away from the words that Duane had reported he had heard the gang saying on the night of the attack. The Lawrence family, in a turn of events, managed to get the backing of South African anti-apartheid revolutionary political leader and philanthropist Nelson Mandela, who was soon to become the president of South Africa. Mandela was in London at the time, and they met with him. He commented to the press that he was shocked that this could happen, particularly in Britain. Now, with criticism from someone such as Mandela, the police knew they would have to push quickly so as to avoid further criticism. They rushed to make the arrests, but as they'd done very little to obtain credible evidence, this proved to be ineffective. When they searched the houses of the accused, they didn't search correctly. They didn't thoroughly look for weapons, and even when given a tip-off that the gang's knives were hidden under the floorboards, they didn't even check that this may have been the case, deciding that the carpets were too expensive to rip up. Clothes and some other knives were confiscated and taken as evidence, but as it had been many weeks since the murder, this had given the suspects ample time to clean their clothes and their weapons. When in custody, the men were questioned, but they had all been well briefed by the police to not answer anything, and they had also banded together to agree that all of them would stay silent so they didn't incriminate themselves. This meant that the police had nothing left to go on apart from calling on Duane to identify the assailants. This unfairly rested all of the pressure on Duane's shoulders to make positive identifications of a gang whom he'd seen for only a matter of a few minutes, and whom he was running away from for most of the time. None of the witnesses who were at the bus stop on the night of the attack were called to identify the gang. Duane, who was understandably suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the attack, was now being pushed to identify the men who murdered his friend. He positively identified Jamie Accourt and Luke Knight, the two 16-year-olds, but failed to identify the other attackers. After three months of Stephen's body being kept by the police, it was eventually released and the Lawrence family could now bury their son. Outraged at how they'd been treated, Doreen and Neville decided that their son wasn't going to be buried in London, as they didn't think Britain deserved him. Instead, he was buried in Jamaica. At the memorial service held in Eltham in June, before Stephen's body was sent to Jamaica, thousands of people attended. There was a real risk of there being civil unrest due to the predominantly black Caribbean attendees who were angry at the loss of Stephen, and the predominantly white working class locals potentially clashing. But the Lawrence family kept everything under control and the crowd was subdued. The last thing they wanted was more senseless violence. Whilst the Lawrence family was abroad burying their son, the news came through that the Crown Prosecution Service had decided that there was not enough evidence to prosecute the gang. This set the public alight in condemning the police's actions. The unsolved murder was looked into, but an internal inquiry reported that there was no foul play, and it was reported that the procedures carried out after the murder were all fine and were in line with what the police were meant to do. This understandably led to the Lawrence family feeling completely and utterly bereft and outraged at their treatment by the police, and their opinion of what had happened in the case was very different. However, a new leadership of the Metropolitan Police would see that a second investigation would be launched in the hope that the killers could be brought to justice. Video surveillance was installed at the home of Gary Dobson, one of the accused men. The footage that was retrieved from the secret cameras installed around the home showed the gang for who they really were, they talked about stabbing people, 
played with knives pretending to stab one another, used aggressive racist language, and spoke about how they wanted to kill black people. However, what the police were looking for was a direct admission about the murder of Stephen, and despite hours of footage, this never came. Again, the police decided that they didn't have enough evidence to convict Stephen's murderers. Having lost complete faith in the police and their ability to carry out their job, Doreen and Neville launched a private prosecution against Luke Knight, Gary Dobson and Neil LeCourt in September of 1994. A very rare occurrence in English prosecutions, a private prosecution is carried out without interference from the Crown Prosecution Service, the standard service which is used in England and Wales. With a lack of evidence available from the police that can be drawn upon for Jamie Accord and David Norris, these two members weren't drawn into the case in the fear that this would make the case harder to prove. All three of the men who were accused denied the charges brought against them. Eventually, after two more years, the case was brought to trial in 1996, and at that trial, Dwayne had to give evidence. Knowing that the case rested solely on the strength of his evidence, Dwayne cracked under the pressure. His evidence was deemed to be unreliable, and as such, the case was closed before the jury were even able to witness any further evidence, such as the surveillance tapes of the gang. This meant that the three suspects were found not guilty by the judge and acquitted. As such, none of them would be able to be tried again for the crime. In the eyes of the Lawrences, and also the men themselves, they'd gotten away with murder, and were now free to live their lives without any recourse. Public outcry happened once more, and again, the Metropolitan Police were forced to carry out another inquiry. However, this time, it was carried out by a neighbouring constabulary, which meant that this was a much more truthful report than the first one had been. Kent Constabulary identified around 28 significant failings of the Metropolitan Police investigations, showing amongst other things that the main source of failings was collecting evidence at the time of the murder, which led to the men accused being able to be easily acquitted. In 1997, a new Labour government were voted into power, and as such, a fresh set of eyes were able to look over Stephen's case and the failings of the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. A judicial review was launched by the government, which looked at and challenged the way the decision about Stephen's case had been made. This was pioneering, as the Lawrence family were now battling the Metropolitan Police and accusing them of being incompetent, something which was completely revolutionary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The McPherson inquiry was leaked to the press and every day a new mistake that was made during Stephen's murder investigation was revealed to the public. The report also highlighted the racism that Duane had suffered as a victim and a witness. 
The accusations from the reports that the police were facing were huge, and the findings showed that the Metropolitan Police were institutionally and systemically racist. During the inquiry, the five suspects of Stephen's murder were also questioned as to their treatment by the police, and to try and extract some information about their whole part in them being brought to trial. All five were completely unhelpful and refused to cooperate. This led to a violent clash when they left, as many angry people had gathered outside. The suspects brazenly postured to the crowds, such as blowing kisses and walking in as if they owned the place, and this was seen to be unnecessarily inflammatory. Their actions made them look incredibly stupid and even more guilty than they had done before. This led to the men being attacked as they left, and the police once again tried to protect them. They were pelted with eggs, and some people managed to get in some punches, but they also fought back and brawled with the crowds. In an unprecedented turn of events, and perhaps believing that they were now completely untouchable, the five went on a late-night TV show and were interviewed by Martin Bashir, an investigative journalist. Their appearance on the show did nothing to help their reputation, and in fact made people much more likely to believe that they carried out the murder. Still roaming the streets, and allowed the freedoms that Stephen would never get to experience, public opinion of the police and of the supposed murderers was at an all-time low. Even their own communities were ashamed that these men were still at large. It was obvious to everyone that something had to change. A monumental change happened when a historic law called Double Jeopardy was scrapped. This meant that if new and compelling evidence was made available, which condemned the original suspects, then they would be retried for the same crime. With new forensic evidence having been unearthed, the case was back on. Since Stephen's murder, there had been advancements in forensic science, which meant that old evidence could be re-examined with new techniques. In 2008, intense microscopic examination of clothing retrieved from the assailants, weeks after the murder, revealed traces of blood. Gary Dobson's jacket had microscopic traces of Stephen's blood within its fibres. Finally, there was provable evidence which could be used to convict him. But the revelations didn't end there. A t-shirt that was taken from David Norris's bedroom also revealed three fibres which matched with the clothing Stephen had been wearing at the time of the attack, and one of his hairs. This proved that despite saying that they didn't even know who Stephen Lawrence was, they'd had physical contact with him, which undoubtedly connected them to the murder. This meant that after 18 years, finally some justice could be sought for Stephen's murder. However, the forensic evidence couldn't find anything to link the other three suspects to the scene. At the trial, Dwayne gave evidence yet again, and this matched with the forensic evidence that had been found. The surveillance footage that was previously meant to be shown in the first trial was finally seen by the jury. This showed the motive and the intent that the gang had. Further testimonies from Dobson and Norris did nothing to help them, and implicated them further with them admitting their racism. This should have been how the trial happened the first time around, and yet it had taken 18 years to get to this point. Stephen could have lived his life over again during that time. Finally, the jury delivered a verdict of guilty, and the two men were sent to prison in 2012. Both were given life sentences. It took years for Stephen's family to receive the justice they should have received, only a few weeks after their son was murdered. The convictions were not solid, and even to this day, one of the suspects is still roaming free on the street, just miles from where the murder happened. The other two murderers have since been convicted of other crimes, and are still currently behind bars for shorter sentences than the other members of the gang. There is no doubt that Stephen was murdered for the colour of his skin. 
in itself a horrendous crime, but the system that was meant to be there to protect him and his family failed them, making everything ten times worse. It took 18 years to convict their son's killers, and I cannot begin to comprehend how terrible that must have felt. To know exactly who they were, knowing that they were getting to live their lives every day, whilst a boy had his life cut short at their hands. It wasn't just Stephen who lost his life that evening. His parents, extended family, Dwayne and their respective community have to be reminded every day of how the racist killers were not brought to justice for an insufferably long time. They have spent, and will continue to spend, the rest of their lives campaigning for equality at the hands of racists. But your life has been and became and has been campaigning. And, and, you know, you've been awarded an OBE because of that, you're a baroness. So you have these accolades, which in some ways I'm sure you'd rather not have and still have your son. Exactly, yes. I think for people, they think, oh, that you've done really well. Um, and for me, I don't really look at it like that, because I just think, for me, yes, it's all great having all of those things, but I'd rather have my son, because that's what's important to me. You've got an opportunity in the House of Lords to speak out about so many things. I mean, two things come to mind with me. The revelation in the newspaper today that an undercover officer who infiltrated your campaign group has finally been named. Don't you feel that the police, this, the, the way that they use the undercover officers to kind of sneakily almost spy on what your supporters were doing, didn't it remove all trust? Because you had to trust someone. Did you feel you could trust no one? I never trust the police in the first place. <laughs> I never had that trust with them anyway. If, I, if there was somebody to trust, they would have um, caught Stephen's killers a long time ago and we didn't have to wait nearly 20 years for that. Now for our next story, we have Malia from the Macabre Monday's YouTube channel and she'll be speaking about Emmett Till. Hey creeps, so for today's episode of Black Historical Stories, this is actually a suggestion that my history sister from another Mr. Nikki Druce of Macabre London suggested I do. Uh, I'm gonna warn you guys right now, this this one isn't, this story isn't as cheerful as our past ones, um, but it is absolutely important and more people should be talking about this, especially now. So this is the story of Emmett Till. And if you guys have studied your civil rights history, you should know this name. You could essentially say he is the George Floyd of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Um, but essentially, he's a 14-year-old boy living in Chicago, Illinois. Happy, sweet, he's a kid, he's 14 years old. And yes, Chicago was still a very rough place in 1955. Uh, even though racism had been outlawed in the 30s, obviously it still isn't perfect now. So you can imagine how it was in the 50s. I mean, literally at this time, black people moving into white neighborhoods needed escorts because they were so unsafe in this neighborhood because people were so angry that black people were moving into their neighborhood. That's a whole other thing that we will get to. Emmett Till wanted to go to Money, Mississippi to go stay with his great uncle and his cousins and have this really great summer vacation. And his mother, Till Bradley, was terrified because this is Jim Crow. This is height of Jim Crow in Mississippi, Money, Mississippi. 
basically it's just illegal being black at this point. What you can and can't do is just a myriad of stupid bullshit laws. And she knew this and she's terrified for her son's life, but he wanted to go. So she lets him go under the pretense of like, even if you think you're in the right, assume you are in the wrong just to be safe. He goes to Mississippi. He's staying with his great uncle who's a sharecropper. He's hanging out with his cousins. He's having a great summer. He's fishing. He's playing. He's being a kid. He is being a child. And then on a hot August night, he decides to go into a grocery store, Bryant Grocery, with his cousins. And upon leaving, apparently, allegedly, he whistled at a woman named Carolyn Bryant, who was the proprietor of this store. And she was super fucking threatened by that because apparently it was illegal to whistle at a white person if you're black in Mississippi. A whistle, a whistle. They think things are fine. A couple nights later, while Emmett's asleep, white men come into the house, order him to get dressed. His aunt, his, aunt, his uncle are screaming and begging, don't take him, don't take him, don't take him. They force him out of the house, they force him into a truck, and they drive down a gravel road. And Emmett's body is found by a fisherman a couple days later in the Tallahatchie River, badly mangled. Sorry, badly mangled, having had had a 70-pound cotton gin fan tied around his neck for whistling. <laughs> and his mother, who I can't even fucking imagine that pain has his body shipped north for the funeral. And she insists on having his casket open so people can see what white racists did to her son. And this gets media coverage and people publish photos of Emmett in their magazines of his poor little mangled body. And this is one of the things that sparks the civil rights movement. In fact, when Rosa Parks was asked about what was like going through her mind when she sat down on that bus, she said, I had till on my mind. And it's just, I mean, literally, it is it is the George Floyd of that moment. And, and, and I understand and I am acknowledging that this is one of many, many stories that happened in senseless murders that happened that sparked the civil rights movement. But this was a big one because this is a 14-year-old child who did nothing wrong. The only thing that happened was there was hateful white people that were so angry, so threatened by a fucking whistle that they murdered, senselessly murdered this poor little boy. And let me tell you about his killers. I won't say their names, you can look them up. This story is not about them, this is about Emmett. But they got a fucking scot-free. They were acquitted by an all-white jury because of course they were. Because of course they were. And if you think this is something that happened then and nobody cares now, or not nobody cares now, but you know, we've moved past that. We've grown. Mississippi has gotten better. No, it hasn't. And I'll prove to you why it hasn't. Because the site of where this horrible crime committed, there is a memorial they keep trying to erect. And people keep fucking shooting it down. They have to keep replacing it. In fact, last year, last year, a bunch of white fraternity brothers got together, took a picture in front of the sign with bullet holes in it, holding guns, bragging about it. So no, we haven't gone anywhere. We haven't changed at all. Look what happened to George Floyd. It is the same thing. This is history repeating itself. Just so fucking 
upset about it and I know we all are and I want to talk about white privilege for a second because as a white person obviously you can tell you hear this all the time white privilege white privilege right now especially white privilege white privilege and so many people are like what do you mean I'm not privileged and I want to take a second and talk about what white privilege actually means because I think when people hear that they think financially they think privilege because we're so wired to think of everything was money first means if they say you're white you're privileged they think there's they they have money that everything's been easy in their life no that's not what it fucking means what it means is that you have the privilege to walk out your door and not be terrified every day what it means is as a white parent you don't have to have specific conversations with your children about how when they walk out that door the world is going to see them different you don't have to brief your child about being scared of the cops or if you get pulled over this is what you do those are things that we don't have to think about even my rage right now how angry i am that is a privilege. Never once when I'm angry and speaking my mind do I have to think and worry about a stereotype. Am I fulfilling an angry white stereotype? No, I don't have to think about that. That is my privilege. I can be angry loud and in the streets and no one's gonna think, oh, there's another angry white girl. That's not how that works. Literally, Emmett Till's mother, before he left, told him, if anything happens, get on your knees and beg for forgiveness. Are you having those conversations? If you're white with your children, are you having to tell your kids that? Because you're so worried. You are so worried about what this world is going to do to them. No. So I just need people. Another thing about white privilege is it's also not discrediting the injustices and discrimination that does happen to everybody. Every ethnicity in the world has some version of discrimination we've experienced all all our ancestors at some point have the difference is right now it's not fucking about us sit down because right now we need to talk about this issue in our country in our world that has never stopped that has always been we brought black people here and then we punish them for being here how does that make any sense at all why do we still why does it take brutal murders for us to ever start talking about this. George Floyd is today's version of Emmett Till. Why did it take that? And why are people still debating equality? Why is that a conversation? Why are you so uncomfortable that if anybody talks about any other ethnicity, you have to feel like you're a part of it? Like, is it FOMO? Like, are you just so upset? that people aren't constantly talking about your whiteness. If I saying black lives matter, it means that your life doesn't like get a clue people. I'm sorry. I, I this one really upsets me a lot. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm sorry for going on a rampage. I just, if this doesn't make you just devastated, and angry on a level that it's hard to interpret into words. I don't know how that's possible. I understand that people grow up in bubbles. I understand that society, we live in echo chambers, but the reality is there is never a point at any second, any time where you can't change how you are. Racism is learned. We are not born racist. 
we learn to be racist and it's ingrained in little ways. The best example of that is if you're walking down a street as a white person and you see a group of, I don't know, white dudes hanging out being stupid, you might roll your eye, right? But you're probably gonna walk right past them. Now as a white person, you see a group of black men standing there, you might cross the street. And I bet you, you don't even think about how that's a form of racism. It is so ingrained in us to see black people and feel fear. Oh, don't go to that part of town. That's the bad part of town. Why? Because they're black? Why? Because yeah, they might have gangs. Well, I'm sorry, I'm Italian and Irish. Guess who had a shit ton of gangs? The Italians and the Irish. No one goes to Little Italy and is like, shit, this is bad, this is, stay away from these people. No, that's not happening anymore. We've moved past it. You know what we haven't moved past? The racism towards black people. So let's keep talking about that. That is the problem right now. We cannot keep having to have parents have conversations with their children where they brief them on how the world is going to treat them differently. We can't keep doing that. We can't keep having that. We don't want to have any more fucking Emmett Till's George Floyd's. These videos have to stop. The names are endless. And we're... All of their lives matter. All of their stories matter. And we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep sharing these stories and we have to keep raising awareness because even if just this video changes the mind of one person, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. So today, hug your babies and hope for a day where no one has to brief their child the way that Till Bradley had to brief Emmett. Let's just hope for one day that we don't have to do that. I believe that the whole United States is mourning with me. And if the death of my son can mean something to the other unfortunate people all over the world, then for him to have died a hero would mean more to me than for him just to have died. Thank you for listening to the stories today. If I can urge you to do anything, please continue to speak out, have difficult conversations, and do your best, as it does result in positive change. Within the short time since George Floyd was murdered, We've already seen some positive improvements across the globe in terms of laws being passed that prevent the type of police brutality he and countless others have suffered, but that doesn't mean it's over. With your help, we can and must make a change. This episode is dedicated to the memory of George Floyd, Stephen Lawrence, Emmett Till, Shukri Abdi, and anyone who has suffered at the hands of racial injustice. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.